Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's scripture is John 18, 1 to 14. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Noel. Good morning and welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square, those who are here with us online, also in person. We've been looking at questions that Jesus has asked, and we're doing this specifically. The lens is to push ourselves to become more curious people, curious about ourselves, curious about the world, curious about people in our world. And the truth is, is to be curious for those around us, you have to move out beyond yourself, right? You t- our tendency, the natural disposition is to navel gaze, to look within. So if you're going to be able to look out, you can't look, be looking within. The, the problem is, is that we tend to be so busy dealing with our own pains, our own hurts, our own traumas, our own shame and guilt. A lot of us feel j- just making it just above the water. Our heads are just above the water. You know, daylight savings, an extra hour. Oh, I lost it. I don't know. I mean, it, we're so thin I'm not making fun of that. Like that, that. That is the straw that breaks the camel's back often because we have all these hardships and hurts. And so my question to you, this is how do you handle your hardships and hurts? How do you, how do, you do it? Because when we feel like we're just making it, we're not going to have the bandwidth to move out in curiosity. 
We're not going to be able to move out and, and, and look and serve and care for other people. And so I would argue that we need to handle our hurts and suffering if we're going to be able to do curiosity and care. And I think there are only five possible views about suffering. In all the world, all the philosophies, all the different religions and worldviews, you could actually distill them down to five possible ways to handle suffering. I'm going to give them to you right now. Option number one is this. There is no God. You have developed through evolution out of nothing. You're going to one day, one day die into nothing. And there is no God, and so everything's kind of random. Randomness rules. And so if you feel like suffering is wrong, you can't feel that way. Despite those feelings, I mean, I guess you can, you'll, you'll feel it, but at the end of the day, there is no rhyme and reason. There is no uh, fate. Uh, there is no a way to, to care for your hurts. That's option number one. Now, option number two is there is no God, but there is an order of the world. There's karma, so to speak. And there, you know, good people get good things and bad people get bad things. That's how the world works. The problem with that view is that often much of suffering doesn't feel deserved. Option three is, comes more from Eastern religions like Buddhism that says this, when you feel suffering, there is no you, and so there is no suffering. That reality is that there is no, this is not actually reality. The problem with that one is it tends to uh, make us feel like our feelings are invalid and that suffering is unreal. The fourth view is that there is a God, or maybe there's many gods, but either way, God is God and you're not, and so you're just sort of stuck in your hurt. You have to feel resigned because there's nothing that you can do about it. And I would actually say there's a fifth view out there. But just stop for a second there. Those are the four main views that, that, are, that are possible. And I would say that those are not views that super help that when it comes to suffering. That there's either randomness or karma or unreal or unable. And so when I think Jesus asked this question in our text, he says, who is it that you want? At the center of that question is an answer that I think transforms our suffering. And I think it's the fifth option that I'd like to, for you to explore with me because to the degree that we get it, to that degree will we actually be able to move out in curiosity. So today, let's, let's, let's tackle this problem in three parts. Let's look at Jesus is God, Jesus is human, and why they have to be both. Jesus is God, Jesus is man, and why you have to have both. So first, Jesus is God. Now you might say, wait a second, I thought we were talking about suffering. We are, but let's look at the text. Let's see how this applies. If you go to verse 3, Judah shows up with a detachment of Roman soldiers. And a detachment was about a thousand Roman soldiers, but back then most detachments didn't have everybody fully employed, so they probably weren't all thousand there. Many scholars think it was about 600, maybe 700 men. And it, it, the text says that they are carrying torches, lanterns, weapons, so they had swords and clubs, and spears maybe. And you had about six or seven hundred Roman soldiers, but then you also had temple police. It says the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, so probably not another couple hundred. So let's, the guesstimation here is around seven, eight hundred men. And they're coming at nighttime. And they're coming to the garden. The garden of Gethsemane was up on a hill. And so you could look down into the valley and you could see this throng of torches and lanterns coming towards you. And what's amazing is that Jesus and his disciples saw that group coming from a long way off, and what's impressive is he didn't run. 
he didn't go. Now, I don't know about you, but if I saw 800 men that I knew were coming to try to either kill me or arrest me or do something to me, you'd be crazy not to run. And Jesus would have been crazy too if he was like us. And I think what's fun about this passage is there's a lot of different examples that includes little breadcrumbs to show us that he is not like us. Let's go through a couple of them. Number one, first, look at verse four. It says here that Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, and in the Greek, it's clear that this is, is a, a type of knowledge, a foreknowledge that humans don't have. He clearly has something that we don't possess, number one. Number two, when he's asked to identify himself, the way he does it, he says, I am he. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that this is a Greek term, uh, ego eimi, which means I am he. But it's, it's a conjugation, it's a group of words that alludes to the Old Testament identification of God. When God in the burning bush, when God in the, the cloud, and when God often would identify himself, I am that I am. And this is an allusion to that, I am he. I'm owning on the deity of the God of the Bible. That's what Jesus is doing here. Now, the third thing that he does is probably my favorite clue. It's what happens after he states his identity in verse 6. Look at verse 6 real quick. He says, I am he. And it says, they drew back and they fell to the ground. And I never noticed this. They drew back and they fell to the ground. This wasn't like one or two people. 800 men fell or flopped to the ground. And you should be asking yourself now, why? What happened in that moment? And the best commentary I read on this was a guy named Alexander McLaren. He says this. He says, I am inclined to think that for a moment, a little rendering of the veil, some flash of brightness that Isaiah sensed as woe is to me, that Moses could not look at, but only see the back in parts. Here, in one stray beam of manifest divinity, shot through the crevice, for an instant, and it was enough to prostrate everyone. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. It's like Jesus, for like a, a, an uber millisecond, lifted up the veil to, so that people could see who he really was, and boom, they're all on the ground. You know, I, if, uh, uh, I've seen sometimes some these videos on Instagram where the, hurt, the like, tornado's coming and it's about to hit the, the house, and the, all of a sudden the camera gets all shaky and, and you can see that it drops. When hurricanes happen or tornadoes happen or earthquakes happen, what's happening is you always fall because the force and, and weightiness of those events, when they push on us, they drop us. They're stronger. Because whenever you come in contact with something that, that, is, that is a larger mass, you can't stand in front of it. See, I think these people thought they were in control. He was in control. I think often we live our lives thinking that it's all up to us. And it's not. I think it's because I'm a minister. A lot of times people find out in New York I'm a minister and they'll say, oh, I like to think of God as X, Y, Z. I like to think of Jesus like this. <laughs> and what's amazing about that statement is that if God is God, if he is who he says he is, then we don't get to say who he is. That, you know, your alarm bells should go off in your head when you start hearing that. If you hear yourself saying, how do I like to think of God? We don't get to decide who he is. And so if Jesus is God... Pull back for a moment right now. The veil's pulled back. This is actually who he is. The, the stream, this beam hits folks. There are so many applications for us, and we don't have time to go through them all. But let me give you just two. 
two quick applications that deal with our suffering of Jesus as God. Number one, if Jesus is God and he has all the power of the world, power over death, power over, over darkness, and yet he still goes through suffering, if he still goes through suffering and we believe in him, that allows us to handle the same. It's a huge implication. That one beam of his presence alters reality and it changes how we interact with suffering. I gave you that list of all the other four possible views that I think are deficient in various forms. But here, because he's not distant, because suffering's not random, because it's not just how karma works, because he enters into it, my presence is limited. Right? His presence is not. Which means that I don't necessarily know why it's happening, and you don't either. I don't know if it's ever going to end, whatever's happening to you. The hurts and cares and heartache. But he does know. And he, if he's omnipresent. If he's omniscient, do we let that reality impact us? Do we do that? Do we let it impact how we handle suffering? Because if this world is all that there is, friends, then there is no hope. Suffering has the last laugh. It is random. It is karma. But if not, if Jesus is God, then suffering doesn't win at the end of the day. And that, guess what? You know what that, that changes suffering. That allows you to bracket it. That gets your head around it. That lets you handle it and do something with it, even. Number one. All right. Number two. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Application. If Jesus God also, it changes how we see ourselves. It changes how we see out there, but it changes how we see in here. You say, How? Because we're not burdened now to have to choose our own identity. Now, some of you will say, well, wait a second. That's one of our foundational values of America. That I, I kind of like that I get to choose my own identity. And that sounds nice to you do you and, and you know, follow your heart and all those kind of uh, axioms that we hear every day. But I would argue that it creates so much suffering that we don't even understand. That if, think of it this way. If it's all up to you to choose your identity, then guess what? You might choose the wrong one which is why I think a lot, a lot of people live in that anxiety. Or if you think you did choose the right one, maybe there's another one that you should choose. Maybe I need to go to that one. And then anxiety keeps increasing because it's all up to me. It's all, I have only myself to fault. If I don't feel happy, if I don't feel like I'm my, myself, if I don't feel like everything's okay. Because the reality is, is that when you choose your own identity, I think that's too fragile. Why? Because if your identity is in your work, if your identity is in your looks, if your identity is in who you're attracted to, if it's in your social class. By the way, I think these are features of who you are. Don't get me wrong. But when they become the foundation of who you are, that's where the problem hits. Because those things can be taken from you. Because people can decide. What happens when somebody decides to deny your identity? Or what we're seeing more and more, people are now defining each other against each other's identities. My identity nullifies your identity. And because we live in a world that this is all that there is, that now you have to get somebody else to affirm your identity or else you're not anybody. So that means then we're beholden to 
other people to validate our, our identity. But look at it this way. Modern formation of identity is too fragile because we need other people to validate. But if Jesus is God, and therefore the, the scriptures are true, and we are made in his image, now identity is, is received, not achieved. Now identity is given unto you, and you don't have to necessarily choose the right one. In fact, you're never going to be able to. But here's what you can settle on. God is three persons, and that means if you're made in his image, you're communal too. You're made for community. If God is who he says he is, and the Bible is true, then God makes promises in the Bible. He makes promises to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, to David. He's a promise keeper, and if you're made in his image, then you're a promise keeper too. That's part of your identity, that the world changes and you're changing, but we're continuing to make promises to one another. God is a creator, you're a creator. The implications are, are, are amazing because, let me try to put it this way. There is something about God. He is so big, there's so many different characteristics about him, that if you're made in his image, then there's something so unique about you as you, individually, that reflects God's nature that nobody else is ever going to be able to do, and nobody else will ever, in the future, ever be like either. That's how unique you are. And... If that's true, then there's so much of who God is that each person, because of our lives, the way we live, the way we act, because of how we reflect God, other people need us in their lives because we give something to them that they don't have that they need, that God has, and we show it. Do you see how cosmically valuable you are then? Like, there is infinite value in what it means to be you, that only you, you're, you there's never going to be another you in the world. And you're reflecting God to other people, that they need you in their life because of your nature. One, way, one person put it this way, there's only some hands that you can hold, that nobody else can hold, that if you weren't here, you couldn't do it. That's, do, you, do you see how infinitely valued you, you are? You don't have to come up with your own identity. And I wonder, and I'm asking you now, have you allowed his presence that Jesus got, have you really allowed that to impact your daily life? Have you allowed that to impress in every moment-by-moment moment, uh, life decision that you have to make? Are you letting it do that for you? Because I think if we did, if we were floored by, not the beam of God, but the, we're floored because we know that, he's, that Jesus is God, then that would let us give, see our own infinite value. Are you floored by that? If we were, I think we'd be more free to be curious of others because we wouldn't have to be looking in so much. We, were, we would know who we were and we could look out and be curious and to care, to love and serve others. You, don't, you know why we, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of capitalism. It works to some degree, but when you settle on that as the main way to get your happiness through consumer, consuming, you're going to consume people, places, and things, and you're going to move on to the next place when it's not advantageous for you anymore. This lets you be present. You can stay in the city longer. You can stay in that relationship longer. You can stay in that family issue longer with him if Jesus is God, number one. Okay, number two. Jesus is God, but Jesus is man. Now, I'm not expecting most of you to argue. Most modern people don't argue that Jesus was human. But you have to still ask, so what? Why does that matter? That the deity can power everybody to the floor is the same person who willingly gives himself up. See, I think that's why, why he does this in this, our text. He gives you a flash 
just so that you might know who he really is, and then he submits. What are the implications that the man who's so fragile and weak that he's born in a manger, and yet as a baby can command angels? What does it mean that you have somebody who gives himself willingly to protect his friends and yet simultaneously knows everything? Right? That he tires and sweats and he hurts and he bleeds and he weeps and he feels. And yet, at the same time, he's God. He's in this, he's in this very garden praying about the cup of agony not to pass him by and yet willing to go ahead and do it anyway. You say, okay, why does that matter? And again, let me just give you two quick applications to our suffering. Number one, his weakness informs our weakness. What do I mean by that? I think there's a, a, we live in a culture right now that says that if you're weak, if you're not in control, you're going you're, you're gonna to uh, lose. We live in a culture where if, to be weak means to give ourselves up, and we're worried that we're going to be uh, misused because of it. And yet here you have Jesus doing the opposite. I grew up, here's what I, I as uh, in New York City growing up here, you know what they told you? As a boy, they said, never let anybody see your weakness. Don't let them see you cry. Hide it. Stuff it in. Don't be intimate. Don't, don't show them that you care. And yet here's Jesus. What is he doing? He's opening himself up. I'm more and more convinced the older I get that sometimes strength kills intimacy. If you don't believe me, go to Central Park right over here. Try to hug a rock. Very strong, no intimacy. <laughs> what does Jesus do? His weakness, what, is, what, what do I mean by weakness? He allows people that he knows is going to hurt him back into his life. He knows, he knows. It says here he knows, and yet he knows they're going to fail him. He knows they're going to hurt him, and he says, come on in. He gives people second chances. See, strength would say, if you're going to hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Or, you know, if you're going to harm me, I'm going to harm you, or at least I'm going to get out of that harm. But Jesus, full well, knowing that people would, would fail and betray him, trusted him. And then he did it again and again, right? Peter failed him, three times denied him. And then post-resurrection, he's like, hey, I'm back in your life, Peter. Right? He, why? You should ask why. And it must mean that at some level, Jesus must feel like the relationships of failed people in his life were worth it. Same for you. I was talking to a friend who had been really, really hurt by people in his past. And I said to him, I said, if Jesus trusted people knowing they're going to fail him, that allows us to trust people knowing they're going to fail us. I think the reason why reports, if you look at the studies, the reports on intimacy, it, it's just plummeting. And the reason why is we don't stay in the relationships once they've hurt us. I think it's going to take wisdom to make sure that we don't flee. We need to make sure we flee from real abuse without fleeing necessarily hard relationships and brokenness. And I think that's our cultural moment that we have to get into. But we can because of Jesus' weakness, number one. Number two, his weakness allows us to own our own. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to tell you this. Every good counselor will tell you that if you want long-term relationships with people, the bedrock of that is being able to forgive and repent. Forgive means to let people off the hook from what they've done, and repentance is to own what you have done. And you really can't have deep relationships unless you actually have that ability. But you have to stay in the relationships to do it. And Jesus, because of who he is, allows us to do that and own it and move into it. How? 
in verse 10, what does he say to Peter? Peter's ready to fight. He's ready. I'm going after him. Slice and dice. You know what he does? Jesus says, put away your sword. Put it away. The supernatural ability to forgive and repent is you have to put that sword away. Because the world, you know how the world works? Sword up. Let's go. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. And Jesus says, that's not the way. That's not my way. Are you out there to steal back what they stole from you? Are you out there to hurt those who hurt you? Because Jesus would say, you put me at your center, I heal, I heal the wounds. I put the sword away. I think the power of the church, the early church, people were being burned at the stake, they were being tortured and pained. You know what they did? They didn't come up with a militia. They didn't say, you know what, we're going to pick up arms against the people who harmed us. They didn't say, you know what, we're going to hurt the Roman citizens the way they hurt us. And you know what happened? It changed the world. The way they handled suffering was the way that Jesus handled suffering. That he put away the sword. All right, last point. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Why do you have to have both? The, the Christian history is full of people overemphasizing only God's uh, sorry, only Jesus' godness, and the church is filled with people only emphasizing his humanity. But why do you have to have both? My worry is this. In every single one of your pockets right now, there's a visual representation through an Instagram reel or a Facebook post or social media or just friendships in your life. There is in your pocket multitudes of many stories giving you salvation paradigms like this, that you can have salvation through political triumph. Let's own the libs. Let's own the conservatives. You can have salvation through uh, this vacation experience. Look at how awesome my life was, and so you can have a life like this too. Salvation through experiences, through drugs, sex, and, and, and families and careers that, you know, here's how to achieve. Here's how to optimize yourself. Here's how to do all these things. Those are all salvation narratives that are coming in 3D, that are affecting our imaginations. And yet they can't actually give us what we want. You know what? You wanna, let me tell you what you want. I'll tell you what I want. I want my friend's child born with cerebral palsy to be healed. I want my dad who has cancer, I want that cancer to be gone. I want the relationships that I've lost to be back. I want the hurts that I've done to other people, I want them to be healed. And you know what? None of these other stories can give me that. None of these other narratives can give me that. But you want to know who can? What happens in verse 1 is the writer, John, is telling us that, when, that this is all being taken place in a very particular place. There's a geographical location. It's actually west of the city. The Garden of Eden was east. And this is almost sort of a, an allusion to Jesus entering a different garden on the west side because this is going to be at the end of time, the end of creation, that Jesus is going to heal and fix things. When Jesus says, put your sword away, why? The very next phrase, so I can drink the cup. Why? So I can fix creation. And the only, only a, a Jesus strong and weak can fix creation. Strong enough to do something about it, weak enough to submit himself to the cup. Right? Weak enough to give up his life, but strong enough that by giving up his life, 
things are healed. Being weak and strong together. The reason why you and I can put our swords away, we can stop dicing each other up, slicing and dicing, is because we know in the end that we are promised healing and renewed life, and we can live in the knowledge of that now. Only Jesus gives us the beginning of the end in suffering here. I would argue the other four possible views of suffering do not fulfill, do not give you the resources that are given to us here. He's saying all of us have the torches and the pitchforks and we're out there and we're, we're hurting each other through them. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to take the suffering that's been dealt to you and I'm also going to take the suffering that you've de- dealt to other people. And I don't know if this is the first time, I don't know who's in this room, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this. Maybe this is the 900th time. For either party, this has to move into your life and change you and move you. That Jesus entered into suffering to end suffering. The judge was judged. And let me give you a little proof about how I know that he, it worked, or at least is, is working, at least in the, in the active here, is that he's able to heal the soldier's wounds. Peter messed up, right? He sliced off this soldier's ear, it, it says here. And that means he actually deserves punishment. He deserves to be taken away and imprisoned. But what does Jesus do? He heals it. It's like it never had happened. How would you live your life if you knew that all the hurts that you've ever done to other people will be healed by Jesus? How would you live your life differently? I'll tell you what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't go off going, oh, I got to get out. I have a get out of jail free card. I can do whatever I want. No, you would not do that if you really knew the costly nature of that healing. And if it was applied to you, and it was at the expense of him. It means that we, when people criticize us, when people hurt us, when when the job isn't fulfilling, when the health isn't there, you don't need those things to the same degree. You don't need the approval to the same degree. And not only that, when people start slicing off your ear, ear, you can still heal theirs. But why? Because you don't need it in the immediate moment, because you know it's coming. And I would argue without this, you, when somebody steals from you, you're going to have to steal it back. Because if this is all that there is, folks. If this is the only world that you have, and there is no, there is no final healing of suffering, then you're going to have to get that healing now with your own sword. But Jesus says you can put your sword away because one day there will be healing. I don't have to get it now because it's coming soon. That's how I want to end. I'm going to try to get as practical as possible. Some of you right now, this all is pie in the sky. This is great theory, thought, but it's not applicable. It's not experiential. How do you, when you've been hurting, and, I, and folks, I, I struggle because I see a lot of the hurt in our church, and in some ways, there's nobody that can really walk you through it. You're, you're in it yourself. What do you do about that? How does, how, how does, for you, you're probably wondering, how does Jesus allow this suffering to continue? Even more, how does he have the audacity? The biblical text tells us, as Christians, while you're still hurting, while you're still suffering, help alleviate other people's suffering. How does he have the audacity to say that to us? To enter into the hardships despite our own hardships? See, what, what do we do when Jesus hasn't healed us, but he's asking us to heal other people? Personally, I'm, pray- I'm praying for healing in my life. I'm praying for healing in my father's life. I'm praying for healing in general. You know what happens? I'm praying for it, and if it did happen, it would be this great story, wouldn't it? Miracle stories are great. We love those. 
But here's a story that never gets told that's actually more amazing. It's the story of the person who's suffering and faithful and never gets told. I think it was C.S. Lewis who says that like the new heavens and new earth is going to be filled with people that we've never heard of before, that for eight years cared, cared for the mother without anybody knowing about it, that stayed with that hard spouse, that did this thing that nobody else, and despite the hurts, through the hurts that you have, you still love and care and serve. There's actually in some ways more power in that story than the, than the miraculous story. Because how do I know that? Because that's what changed the world. That despite our sufferings, you still go off to alleviate sufferings. This is the power that's going to be able to get us to move out those doors right there into the world. But what a witness, what a witness to the world when the suffering serve. What a witness to the world when we don't need our own healings to go heal other people. What a claim to deep understanding of God's faithfulness, knowing that he's going to heal, we just don't need it right now. It'd be powerful. What if, what if God right now is taking all the things, all the brokenness, all the things you're experiencing and making you more beautiful through them? What if you are not going to be like those people that demand God to you know, heal them before they believe in him? But we say, you know what, I don't need that. That actually I can see how there's more beauty even through the pain. If he can take this, the worst situation. Some commentary said this story is one of the saddest stories in the, in the universe. Of Jesus, the Son of God, the maker and creator of all things, being decreated for us. If that can be turned into beauty, then it, this can be turned into beauty in your life too. Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. That's how the early Christians handled oppression and hurting. And they changed the world and it can change our world too. Is that enough for you? You have the ability to heal even when we haven't been healed. Let this power move into your life. It's the only resource that I know of that helps us through suffering, not all those other ones that we talked about. And it would change the world and it can be a miracle for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, Jesus is God, Jesus is man. That means we can't ultimately lose. And there is hope for our hurts. Nothing else will. Nothing else will move in our life and change us and remake us. I pray that we will allow this to impact us. Help us to stop running away into escapism, throw ourselves into the monotony of, of the next thing that is the most pressing on us. Help us to pause and say, do I really allow the omnipresence of God through Jesus and his humanity to move us into, through our suffering? We pray, that, we, we pray that you would. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.